Welcome to the Doctor Patient Forum, a no holds barred patient advocacy podcast discussing why millions of pain patients continue to suffer, but most importantly, who caused the suffering. Join us weekly as we discuss how you can help end the untreated pain crisis. Hey, folks, thanks for taking time out of your day for joining the Doctor Patient Forum podcast. Don't forget, if you like this episode or if you like any of our episodes, please leave us a five-star review. Folks, you know that if you follow us, you probably know that the CDC has updated their horrific opioid prescribing guidelines. Me personally, I don't know why the CDC was meddling in how a doctor practices. And because of pain advocates and other advocates, the CDC was forced to update the guideline. It was released in 2022, and it's left a lot of doctors with questions. And today, our guest is so kind enough to take time out of her busy schedule to give us her opinion. And she's also going to share with us the challenges that come along with being not only a pain provider, but a female pain provider. Dr. Sarah is an interventional pain doctor who's based out of Maryland. Welcome to the show, Dr. Sarah. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So, Sarah, you sent me an email. I think it was in January. And as soon Mm -hmm. as I read your email, I sent it to Bev. I said, oh, my gosh, we've got a normal, nice doctor. (laughs) who." uh, And I think you learned about us through our podcast. Yes. And I was so thrilled. And I got on the phone with you probably a day after uh, I received your email. So thank you for reaching out to us. Uh, We need more compassionate providers and you're one of those providers. Yeah, thank you so much. So Sarah, the first question I wanted to ask you is what is your opinion on the updated CDC guideline? I think they're a big improvement. I think they're a big improvement. So I feel like I see a lot of the sides um, as a prescriber uh, and someone who wants to help patients. You know, so I, I do think, you know, it's reasonable to have some guidelines, but I think what's What's good about the changes is that the, um, the authors have really taken some steps to emphasize that they're a clinical guideline and they're not a rule. They're not an absolute. And they also have gone to some lengths to say, hey, this is not something for an insurance company to adopt. That's not what this is. The purpose of this is to give um, clinical guidance um, for providers who are practicing in the pain space, whether they're, and they went further also to say, whether they're primary care, pain management even, or other prescribers. Whereas the 2016 guidelines were really pretty clear, hey, this is around the primary care space. They've really kind of retooled the delivery of it, of who they really think it's for. Just going to interject a bit here. You just heard Dr. Sarah say that the updated guidelines are good because they did have some improvement from the original guidelines, including not implementing these thresholds as law or policy, including payer or insurance companies. So insurance companies used these as limits. They used 50 and 90 MME as limits. They used the three to seven day duration as limits, and they based it on the CDC guidelines. And so it is an improvement in the updated guidelines for them to say, look, these aren't mandatory limits. These are just guidelines. So the first quote I'm going to play to you is from Dr. Jane Valentine. She has been president of PROP 
She's out of Washington. She's been involved in this from the beginning. Dr. Jane Ballantyne was actually on the core expert group of the 2016 CDC guidelines. She also is, again, an expert witness in opioid litigation where she made, well, we don't know how much she made because they don't have to tell us. I want you to hear what she has to say about the insurance limits. They also recognize that rigid application of the opioid dosage thresholds that they'd actually named in the previous guideline was not helpful and that the duration limits were adopted inappropriately by insurers and by pharmacies and also that the guideline did inadvertently lead sometimes to patient dismissal and and abandonment. This wasn't the first time I heard a prop member, or as I like to call them, anti-opioid zealot, claim that this uh, payer limits or other limits were misapplications. But I want to play something else for you. Dr. David Taubin, Taubin, however you pronounce it, also a prop member, also part of this from the beginning, also an expert witness in opioid litigation, also, just like Valentine, took part in the 2016 CDC guidelines. He was on the peer review committee of three people. He founded this, whatever it's called, organization or or program called Telepain. I think it was funded by FDA. I'm not 100% sure. Maybe NIH too was thrown in there. But this was started many years ago in the 2000s. It has to do with opioids. And in 2016, Telepain out of University of Washington had a series of lectures, webinars. They're on YouTube. I'll link them in the show notes. I want you to hear what he has to say about payer insurance limits. Now, this was, again, right when the guidelines first came out. But I want you to listen to what he says. And and I'm happy to say we're meeting with insurance company and big health plan folks to be able to convert guidelines for prescribers to guidelines for health systems and insurance entities, because that's the next big step. And uh, I hope uh, uh, that we make progress and I'll keep you appraised as we do move forward on this. I'm sorry, what was that? Because I'm pretty sure I heard him say that they were having meetings, they, I'm assuming prop, with payers and insurance companies showing them how to convert these guidelines for prescribers to guidelines for insurance companies. So to me, that sounds like that was a very intended consequence. I would love to get a hold of these meetings. I don't know if we can. Certainly, I'm going to try. But I'm pretty sure Tobin just said that they were meeting with them to implement these thresholds with insurance companies. So now I'm going to play for you in 2022, in November, when the CDC guidelines came out, Christopher Jones, who was an author, and he's, I think he's like acting director of the Injury Center. I'm not fully sure there, but he's he was an author for the updated guidelines. He's a pharmacist. And he did a telebriefing like they do in November of 2022, where media was allowed to ask questions. So I want you to listen to what Jones had to say. The new 2022 guideline is a clinical tool to empower patients and clinicians to make informed decisions together. I want to emphasize a few important points about the new guideline. First, these recommendations should support, not replace, care that is tailored to an individual's patient's, patient's needs and health history. Second, the guidelines recommendations are voluntary and meant to assist and guide shared decision-making between a clinician and patient. The guidelines should not be used as a rigid standard of care or inflexible policy or law. It's not meant to be implemented as absolute limits of policy or practice by clinicians, health systems, insurance companies, 
governmental entities. During this telebriefing, media asked questions. So I want you to hear the first question asked to Jones by media. Our first question is from Andrew Joseph with STAT. Your line is open. So, so CDC has been saying basically since at least 2019 that the 2016 guidelines were misapplied. And I know in your commentary in the New England Journal, you kind of make the point that you're going to monitor for unintended effects going forward. But what does that actually look like? Like what happens if an insurer still has a cap of 90 MME or even an individual physician is, you know, cutting patients off? Like what, are, what is CDC going to do about that? Thanks for the question. I think it's a really important point. And certainly we have tried throughout the guideline to put elements in place with really the overarching principle about supporting clinical judgment in individualized patients in our care. So I want to be very clear with this conference call and with the release of the guidelines today that um, if, if policies are put in place that have one-size-fits-all rigid standards of care, that is inconsistent with the goals and intent of this guideline as a clinical tool to inform decision-making. I think operationally, if we see practices like that that are occurring, First, we see as an educational opportunity. Certainly, if people are purporting to derive from the guideline that that's the justification for taking some rigid action that applies to all patients. So we would see that as an educational opportunity and we'll be monitoring and engaging with, as I mentioned, clinical partners and patient organizations to also raise awareness for where those circumstances may occur and then engaging us appropriately to share accurate information about the latest science and about the intent of the guideline. Jones's answer, although long-winded, basically said two things. One, if this happens, it'll be an educational opportunity. We'll just teach them that it shouldn't happen. And two, we're gonna partner with pain advocacy groups to keep a pulse on what's actually happening. So I would love to know which patient advocacy groups they're talking to, and I have some ideas of who they might be, but did he actually say anything at all? Because I still didn't hear a plan as to what you're going to do with payer limits, state laws, organizations, doctor's offices, clinics, OIG, DEA, Bamboo Health, any of these places. I didn't hear anything where he said, this is our plan. This is our implementation plan. This is how we funded it. This is what we're gonna do to measure outcome. None of the things that were put in place in 2016 were put in place now. And I know they weren't because if they were, he would have mentioned them here, right? I mean, he was asked a pretty direct question and his answer, in my opinion, was a non-answer. Do I blame Christopher Jones? No, I think he's just the media front. He was the person who went on the media tour when the guidelines came out to say, oh, they were misapplied. Oops, we're gonna make them better. So I just think his answer was all it could be because he has nothing to say because there isn't a plan. And this was in November, here we are in April, and things have gotten worse. So now what? Where is the CDC in helping us fight these arbitrary threshold limits? Now back to our interview with Dr. Sarah. Said while well, they removed the, the threshold, what a doctor can prescribe and to treat your patient as an individual, they mentioned at 50 MME instead of 90 MME. And I think that's where the confusion was for especially the patient. Because before, I'm sure you know, millions of these, these poor people, they've been either cut off of their opioids overnight, yes. or they were living a great life, 200, 300 MME, and they were taken down to 90 in one visit. Yes. 
which yeah. is so cruel. Yeah. And I think the, you know, the author's have gone as far as uh, really even before the 2022 updates came out, there was a, an article that they put into the New England Journal of Medicine called No Shortcuts to Safer Opioid Prescribing. This is in the New England Journal of Medicine in, I guess this is 2019, to really emphasize that, that the purpose of the guidelines was not to have anyone get their opioids cut in half in one visit, that it, and they've gone further in the current guidelines really to say that you know, there should be collaborative decision making and that, and they mention, right, that in involuntary weaning uh, is associated with some bad outcomes, you know, including ER visits and psychiatric hospitalizations and prescribers need to know that it's not risk-free to um, make a big decrease in medication acutely. Right. And in fact, folks, if you're listening to us today, we have 15 studies on our website the doctorpatientform.com, 15 studies uh, supporting the fact that it's far more dangerous to taper your patient instead of just leaving them on. I think the problem is perhaps some people were put on high doses of opioids, but we're learning now, leave those patients. If they're stable, leave them alone because what's happening, we've got veterans who are driving into the VA parking lot committing suicide. Yeah, that's right. These suicides just go unnoticed. We had poor Danny Elliott. We had his brother on our podcast, Danny and his wife, Gretchen. They committed suicide after Danny's third doctor was shut down. And, you know, these poor doctors, they're damned if they do, damned if they don't. But I think they're just so afraid that they'll just close down the clinic, leave these poor people alone. Well, uh, I think I think a lot of it comes to the, the, the doctor-patient relationship or, or practitioner-patient relationship because it needs to be something where, where we're on the same page. And, you know, a hundred percent, there are harms of involuntary weaning. Is there times that it happens or might, might need to happen? Yes. But, you know, I, I do think that there was an underappreciation of, you know, in 2016 when the guidelines came out and, and if prescribers really haven't dealt with this, um, I think there's been an underappreciation of how, how harmful it could be. And really the, th- there are, studies in the literature, uh, like Beth Darnall at Stanford has done studies about weaning where she, her group at Stanford works with patients to decrease medications, um, but it's all voluntary. Right. They exclude, if you don't want to taper, you can't get in her study. She won't do it. That's not what it is, you know? And so it's not that you can't taper people. I think that's really important to help people understand. It's not that you couldn't taper. It's that the patient needs to be ready and be bought in and and the outcomes can be really good. And, and so it's not that you can't taper, but you have to, and and some of it's like education and, or getting to the same, you know, getting on the same page as the patient. Have we done everything else that we can for you? Right? Like medications can be important, can be a big part of somebody's pain management plan, but is there other stuff we can do? And like really maximizing all that other stuff too, before a person can like even start to like fathom tapering. And, and a lot of times if you work in a collaborative way and can, you know, get some improvements. A lot of patients don't want to take medication. They just are at a point where they might need to. Sure. And they, and the same applies also, Sarah, for people who are on Suboxone for, for substance yeah. use disorder. I can't tell you the number of people that reach out to me. They don't want to be on the medication anymore. Mm-hmm. And there's simply not enough help to help people wean off of these medications. And that's another goal of the doctor patient forum. Some people don't want to be. Yeah, I didn't want to be on I was taking a quarter milligram of clonopin. 
Mm-hmm. I wasn't I wasn't forced to stop yeah. taking it. But my thought was, I don't want to take it anymore. I don't want to be handcuffed to any med. Me personally. Sure. Mm-hmm. But I was so fortunate that my doctor was like, yeah, all right. So here, take it on a Monday, then a Wednesday, and then do that. And I did mm-hmm. it. And now I'm off of it. And I'm relieved that I don't have to like jump through unimaginable pool. CDC guidelines in 2016, one of the huge improvements is they used to say in their tapering guide, never reverse a taper. And my state... Mm adopted that. So North Carolina had on their website, never reverse the taper. And I mean, I did talk to my medical board about it. And and the thing is, if you want patient buy-in and you say to them, look, let's yeah. try it. If it doesn't work, we could go right back where you were. Yes. See you more patients would be willing than if you say, yes, oh, well, you, you chose to do it. You're screwed now. Like that. I think that's a ridiculous even idea, but I don't know that we're still not hearing that patients are having the option of reversing a taper. Sarah, as a provider, are you receiving any information through your health department about the updated guidelines? Because we know the 2016 guideline was embedded in in everything healthcare related, right? The 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 emails, everything was yes. don't prescribe an opioid and do this and but now with the updated guideline, we're just hearing dribs and drabs. I'm not hearing that same yeah. vim and vigor. Yeah, that's an interesting point. That's an interesting point. I hadn't really thought of it that way, but uh, it's true. In fact, as a prescriber in 2016, we got mailers from the Surgeon General at the time, uh, Dr. Murthy, I believe, and um, we got uh, paper mail and email and all kinds of things letting us know that these guide- guidelines existed. Um, but there hasn't been quite no, the same enthusiasm no. to no. publicize no. these revisions. I think not. that's a fair a fair right. criticism. Yeah, you had balloons dropped on top yeah. of your clinic by by birds. Here, two new guidelines now. Hey. Well, yeah, where's hey. the updated guideline? It's it's radio silent. It's yeah. just a colossal failure. Yes, you know I work on legislation <clears throat> and I work so hard to get the bill signed into law. I'm still waiting for the Department of Health to out my bill to providers. And, you know, mm-hmm. they just, they're, they're so reluctant to address the fact that some people need to be on daily opioids, right? Nobody sure. wants to address it. I wanted to talk with you uh, because Bev and I hear from so many people that they're being forced to get injections in order to continue to get their pain medication. Is this something that you're familiar with? I'm sure every case is different and and what you might be getting from patient, you know, certainly you have some individual stories probably to share. I mean, I think it's reasonable to work with patients to have them doing something other than just taking medication for pain. Um, work with patients to adopt a home exercise program. If, for instance, you know, we in my practice, we might be uh, hoping a patient can do physical therapy, but if they tell us, you know, gosh, the copay is prohibitive, you know, we might actually work with them for a home exercise program that they're going to do outside of the physical therapist. I love that. Yeah. yeah. I'm so appreciative of that because Bev is going through this as we speak, right, mm-hmm. Bev? They want me to go to physical therapy three times a week. I did it like once a week for like a few months and I can't, I can't afford it. I wish I could. I would love to be able to go at least twice a week, but yeah, it's too high. Yeah. It's, it's a tough thing too, because so if, um, you know, I'm in Maryland and, you know, for patients who have Medicaid, uh, fortunately, you know, the copay for the patient or 
that coverage is going to be very little to nothing, but it's, it's these patients who have third party insurance and sometimes Medicare where they may have a significant copay, even 30 or $50 a visit. And then suddenly say it's $40 a visit and you're going twice a week. That's $80 a week in a month. That's $320. It's a pretty significant expense. Yeah. Yeah. And you may think that Medicare with this big push to not prescribe opioids, you may think that within the no pain act, it would have been more inclusive. You know, I'm fortunate. I go to physical therapy three times a week. Mm -hmm. I don't have any co-pays and without physical therapy, forget it. I couldn't be a fitness competitor. So Mm -hmm. for me, it's changed my life, but who can afford that $400 a month? That's gross. I mean, that's, yeah, that's everything. Absolutely. I'm cost that. And that's the thing that you mentioned the no pain act. Like I just wish that our government and all the lobbying and all the efforts that went into put that, that act in play, the no pain act, that it would have been something different that would have helped actually helped maybe minimize opioids and help patient care, which like paying for physical therapy is a huge one, but the no pain act that was put through in a way that they say it will, uh, solve the opioid crisis. And I don't think it's going to do anything but make pharmaceutical companies money. Yeah. Yeah. And Sarah, so the No Pain Act, I don't know if you're familiar with it as much as we are, um, which is pretty scary. But so the No (laughs) Uh, Pain Act is, you know, it's Expirel. It's the the numbing, the bubivacaine. Oh, yes. Right. Slow release. Mm -hmm. And they created this, the lobbyist, or I mean, there's always a lobbyist. So the lobbyist for Pacera Pharmaceuticals, in order to get Expirel paid for in an outpatient setting, you know, you need a good story when you're a lobbyist. And the story was, oh, you know, use our product and that's going to solve the opioid epidemic because women Mm -hmm. are getting hooked on pain pills after they're having a C-section. And they really used women as the focal point throughout this whole uh, you know, opioid epidemic. And it was just, it's so ridiculous to insinuate that everybody becomes an addict because they're exposed. But here, now that we have Expirel, problem mm-hmm. solved. They're well, and it's really like a little, I think it's like a little carve out for that medication, isn't it? Because um, otherwise the surgery center would need to bundle right. the cost of that medicine and it would cut into the ability of them to perform the surgery in a, in a profitable way. And, and, and I mean, let's be serious. It's not all about profit, but they do have to be able to make ends meet. Right. So if they can't, you know, pay the staff, then they can't use Expirel or whatever. And so in this act, to my understanding, it right creates a certain carve out for this medication. And I'm not sure if it addresses others um, such that, you know, if there is an expensive therapy that uh, helps with pain, that it can become more widely available. And I mean, and I would add another one is, is like intravenous Tylenol. I mean, the women, these poor women, they're having, they're only being offered IV Tylenol in a hospital. And we just had Dr. Singer on about this Mm -hmm. Uh, and Josh Bloom, he's coming on the show and he really debunks the whole IV Tylenol theory, but it was supposed to be meant as add-on therapy. Mm -hmm. So, but now these, these poor people, they're only getting that. They're being told, well, no, that's all we offer is Tylenol. I remember being in the hospital. I mean, I lived there 10 years. They never gave me IV Tylenol because it was so costly. Right. And all of a sudden now it's the panacea for pain relief. And my feeling is, listen, if it works, great. Some people don't want opioids after surgery. Some people can't poop after getting opioids after surgery. 
Mm-hmm. But let's not punish the people who do need opioids after surgery because that's what happened. There's a balance mm-hmm. in this whole opioid prescribing. Our country hasn't met the balance. So we have so much work to do, but I, I really sure. think that we can get there. So I'm Well, and, and are there surgeries that we could not be doing? You know, I mean, that's the other question, right? Is there an ability to, to do things less in, invasively? Uh, I think that could also result in in better outcomes for patients. And I think the problem is, like Claudia said, because they did focus so much on women, is we are hearing primarily from women. I'm talking like double mastectomy patients only given IV Tylenol in the hospital. And then what happens is if they're crying and they're saying they're in pain, then they're reprimanded and drug seeking is being put in their charts. It's not like, oh, Tylenol didn't work. Let's try something else. It's this is supposed to work. If it doesn't, there's something very wrong with you. Get out of my hospital. You're a drug seeker. Red flags for the rest of your or, life. Or Sarah, we just had a person. She sent me her, her medical records while she was in the hospital. She went on the portal and she said, I'm septic. I was admitted for being septic. And this is what the doctor, the doctor put down that she was narcotic seeking. And malingering. malingering. And malingering. Mm. Makes no sense. So it's uh, like I said, there's a balance. Uh, I think it's very unsafe to have your loved one be left in a hospital, especially with these staffing issues. But when you add untreated pain, it's a recipe for disaster. We have much work to do. So well, I'm, and I'm, I'm just looking, there are, you know, there are consensus guidelines. I can, I can send these to you after we record. There are some consensus guidelines from, I believe, the American Associ- Association of Regional Anesthesia in regards to assessing pain, offering multimodal treatments. And I think, you know, maybe that's offering, say, Tylenol only is the is the bad flip side of multimodal care. It shouldn't be multimodal to the exclusion of an opioid. It should be, hey, let's offer all the things. And yes, you can start with maybe the non-opioids, but when that's insufficient, there's no guideline that says that you shouldn't give an opioid. Yeah, right. and I'm tell you what we find for anyone on opioids every day on chronic opioid therapy, whether it is for opioid use disorder or for pain, because they're so uncomfortable giving additional opioids, what they're what yes. they're doing, and we hear it often, not only do they not give anything for acute, but while you're in the hospital, they stop all your medication. So you have people not getting their acute issue treated and going through withdrawal and having whatever pain they normally have. And then if they're crying, they're being reprimanded and kicked out. Like, I think, I wish the guidelines, we put that in our comment to the CDC, all of those pages, um, this is back when it was over 200 pages in their draft, mm-hmm. very, very little, if anything, really addressed what to do for someone with tolerance who's on chronic opioid therapy already. All they said was give them the littlest amount possible extra and take them right off, but not a whole lot of warning about not cutting them off. I mean, we've had people on methadone for 20 years for addiction. They had a severe acute issue and they stopped their methadone in the hospital. Yeah. And that, that shouldn't happen. That absolutely should not happen. Or nurses, the, oh my God, hundreds of nurses have reached out to us uh, just, you know, sharing their frustration. Like, what is going on, people? Or Mm -hmm. it's like back to the late 70s or the mid 70s when there was, we did need the fifth vital sign. And some people Mm -hmm. believe that the, the fifth vital sign created the opioid epidemic. But I would just add to this, you know, what I see as a community provider is, you know, my patients who might take an opioid and they end up needing a surgery. And I've had patients more than once, particularly, you know, my spine patients that might take something in the 
over 90 milligram morphine equivalents on a daily basis. And they get discharged from the hospital. And, and really the expectation for most patients in most clinical situations is that the patient can be discharged from the hospital. The hospital team will write three to five days of medication, enough for the person to get in with their regular pain doctor. And if they need a further prescription at that time, the pain doctor can address it. Uh, and that's been kind of normal medical practice for many years. But at this point, you know, more than once I've had my patients who take in this over 90 MME category where the, the hospital doctors will just say, you know, we're not allowed to write that versus having an attitude, you know, of being able to write what's necessary for the patient. And I can't speak to any hospital's individual policy. Uh, I don't honestly know if that's true or not, or if that's just a reluctance on the part of the prescriber. Yeah, I it's say. not true. I, I, we, we have, we're working, we're collaborating with the hospital administrator who's, who's voiced grave concern over what's happening in the hospital. And I just spoke with him yesterday. He's like, I fired doctors for not treating pain. And these mm -hmm. doctors would rather be investigated for patient abandonment instead of being investigated for writing scripts for opioids. He said, mm. there are three different doctors because they were reluctant to give people pain relief after surgeries. Mm. And I, I think what's going to happen right now, hospitals are overwhelmed, but pain patients, they've stopped going to the hospital. Yeah. They've stopped getting surgery. Sure. They've stopped. I mean, they're just, it's not irrational. I mean, that's, yeah. that's not an irrational reaction to, right. Okay. Right. I'm going to stay away from there. Right. They're yeah. afraid they've been, it's a form of abuse. And I think the system, then you can survive the system, but the people that we advocate for a, a lot of these people did not have the benefit of a college education. They're living on $10,000, $15,000 a year. And if I've learned anything, it's that poor people are treated like dogs. And it's elderly too, Claudia. Oh, yeah. The elderly. It's mostly Terrible. elderly. We have, I would say, half of the people who contact us that are abandoned are over 55 and maybe like a quarter of them are over 65. And so they're taking a population that's not really that high risk who maybe have been on opioids for 10 years, which really actually makes less chance of overdose. And they're just cutting them off. Like mm -hmm. in not giving them anything. And then you have, you do have some hospitals who are getting a bigger reimbursement from the insurance companies if they don't give opioids after certain surgeries. I know in Michigan, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan has this for certain surgical procedures. If a doctor doesn't give opioids after it, they get a much higher reimbursement rate. And I, I have a problem with that. Interesting. Yeah. Sarah, I have a question uh, mm -hmm. because I have another, a good friend of mine is a prescriber, a high prescriber, and she's really unfazed by the CDC guidelines. She's like, yeah, I don't pay attention to that shit. And, and she's fearless. And I get the same feeling that you're fearless. You're treating your patient as an individual. How concerned are you about the DEA and about medical boards? Yeah, I'm definitely concerned. No, I think, it, no, it's not a matter of being fearless, but I do think that the, um, where the system has gone, you know, I've been out of training for maybe 15 years. There's a older generation before me of doctors who were decision makers and, advocates for the patients. And I just really, this was the culture of medicine for decades. And I, I feel that one of the challenges we have in the current healthcare environment is that in many ways, practitioners are relegated from being decision makers to decision implementers, where we're really just encouraged to follow a protocol or a recipe, et cetera. And I think that's, that's a big challenge in, in today's world for, for a lot of us. 
Uh, and I wouldn't say that I'm fearless at all. I would say, you know, I, I do feel like I, I, I have to answer to the Board of Medicine for my actions. I have to answer to the DEA potentially for my actions. And knock on wood here, you know, I hope not to need to have those conversations. Sure, but, sure. That, um, well, that's going to be, I mean, I would be afraid mm-hmm. because we have doctors incarcerated. Dr. Bill Bauer, 86 years old, he didn't do anything wrong. He just continued to treat patients. But there has to be a way for, I mean, look at the money and the time that you've invested in your, your training, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, you, if something happens to me and I'm sick, I'm calling Sarah, not agent 3465. <laughs> Right. So there has to be a way to remove the DEA from the clinic. And that's uh, that's something else we've been working on. You know, we need that DEA oversight hearing because it seems like the government has destroyed, has obliterated the sanctity of the doctor patient relationship, which is really, really unfortunate. Yeah, I think it's a concern in some cases. I mean, I you know what I've told people, you know, the way I was trained, you know, I'm I, my role is that I'm as the physician, I'm not law enforcement, right? And so if I'm concerned that someone is diverting, I don't necessarily need to correct that wrong, right? That's not my role. But my role is to not be stupid. Yes. And, yes. you know, we can't be looking the other way. We can't be not paying attention. We can't be not doing the monitoring. And so that is, you know, that is on us to, to do these things. And I just right. feel like that's the place where, where I can feel comfortable with my practices is knowing that we are watching for problematic behaviors on the part of patients. And, and look, it's really, it's in the patient's best interest, right? Like that's really what it comes back to is I'm a physician. I am here to treat patients. And if the patient is diverting their medications, well, that's not medical treatment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's part of that's the, not my role. right. And it, there's, it's part, because my girlfriend says many times, why do I have to be a detective? Yeah. Um, and she's she has to make some really hard decisions because she still she she does have patients that are that are not following the pain contract. And and that's a real problem for me as an advocate, because sometimes those patients can destroy a whole clinic. And, yeah. you know, and then the doctor's in trouble. And then we've got another two thousand patients who have become, you know, who are yeah. who have been left homeless. So you got to follow the rules of a pain contract. For sure. That's it. There's got to be rules. And a lot of these people are, they've been demoralized and some doctors have taken advantage, you know, having them come in for numerous urine drug tests. Like one doctor thought he was going to get away with testing somebody every week. That's ridiculous. So yeah. And most of the carriers, meaning insurance carriers or CMS, you know, they have rules around, you know, how often is okay. You know, how many of these you can do within a period of time. You know, there, there are, there are medical practice standards. Now that's to say, okay, maybe that doctor was not abiding by the medical practice standards, but there are some suggestions and, and it's fair for patients to ask questions about, Hey, what's the standard in my case? How often should I be getting a urine test? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the pill counts sure. and the, and n- now with this staffing issue, it's, it's impossible to find solid people to work in the clinic. I see the challenges that, you know, several of my friends have, but mm-hmm. um, I think some doctors have also capitalized off of the untreated pain crisis. So mm-hmm. once again, I always say there's a balance and we just have to find that balance, hopefully sooner rather than later. So I'm board certified in addiction medicine also. Okay. And I got interested in that, you know, really because of treating people with pain and, and, where is the line if somebody exhibits an aberrant behavior one time, you know, is that an addiction problem and, and how do you know? And so I think this, this might be interesting to, to you and to your audience, you know, the, 
the training that I had, and I finished my pain medicine fellowship in the like 2008-ish, the training that I had at the time, if a patient were you know, not abiding the policies and you wanted to not continue the doctor-patient relationship, you know, you might discharge them with a 30-day of, um, but it just always bothered me, like, you know, when has that like solved anyone's problem, right? And if we're really here for, for patients, you know, what sense does this make? And if I think this person has a opioid problem, you know, am I really doing them doing the right thing by writing them 30 days in a discharge letter? No, you'll put them on Suboxone. And, that- and now we do, or at least we yeah. offer that, you know, frankly, now it's a choice, you know, hey, hey, person, you've got, uh, you've got a couple of choices here, we can work with you to go in this different direction. And we can write buprenorphine and we can treat treat you for the issues as they stand or we can do this other option and write you 30 days in a discharge letter and I'm glad to hear you say that because that's something I say all the time like who is helping it, in what yeah. is it helping a patient to dismiss them if you think they're selling I mean that's a little bit different if you think they're diverting but if you think they have an addiction issue if you, how does that help mm-hmm. they might just be misusing maybe it is untreated pain maybe they need a different medication how is it helping? But most of the people that we get contacted, the people that contact us, it's that very situation where they're just, and, and if I told you the things, the reasons why people are being dismissed, a lot of it comes down to these prescription drug database and risk score metrics, like mm-hmm. uh, who have mental health issues. If the doctor finds out, they dismiss you. If you say I'm struggling with depression and you're on opioids, a doctor wants you off of their case because they don't want to be flagged. And that I, I wanted to ask you, we hear from doctors, they get a lot of different uh, like report cards, kickback letters, like high prescriber letters, whatever. Do you get any of these letters about your prescribing from like insurance or anything like that? I think different states have different things that they do. I'm licensed in Maryland and my practices in Maryland, but I also have access to the Virginia PDMP and I actually use it to check other states. So Maryland's PDMP checks DC, Maryland, Virginia, but it, I've got a patient that just moved from Florida or South Carolina and I want to see their history. Right. And, and honestly, it's, it's a way to like show that people are telling you the truth, right? It's to verify, Oh, here's what they said. Yep. There's their prescription. That's what they told me. And now I can verify it. And I can do that with the Virginia PDMP. And so I have a registration for that that's separate from my Maryland and they'll let you, you know, even if you're not a Virginia doctor, you know, you just tell them why you want it. So I do get a monthly report from Virginia of any prescription that's filled in Virginia on my behalf because I'm registered with them. So even though I'm not a licensed Virginia doctor, I am a, have an access to the, the PDMP there. So I can see that if your whole practice was in Virginia, you'd be getting reports on the amount of prescribing that you're doing and how you stack up next to your peers. I think that's what's interesting about the Virginia data, frankly, because you can kind of operate in a vacuum and not know what other people are doing. If you're a a provider and in practice, you know your own practice and your own norms, but how does it really look next to other prescribers? You don't have a great reference for that. And Uh, and if you're a pain doctor, you're going to be the high prescriber or one of the high prescribers. Yeah. And I think it's, it's high prescriber in terms of volume of patients. Um, That's, that's what the PDMP letter from Virginia can show you is yeah. How many prescriptions and then how many are in low, medium, high dose range. They kind of stratify it like that. Right. Um, Right. And, and in Maryland, you know, Maryland Medicaid does send prescriber letters. They're like educational letters is how they position it. And they're not truly meant to completely whatever is going on. But I think just as a moment of reflection and making sure, hey, this is the plan we want. So for instance, if you have a patient who's prescribed an opioid and they're prescribed other sedative medications, sure, you, you might get, get your, a prescriber get your letter. That's right. And in yeah. Rhode Island, when we write a script for a controlled substance, 
Be- before you know it, your email is filled with letters from the Department of Health. These are long letters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're not they're not friendly letters. But in the middle of it, it said this letter is not to judge you. Yeah. Uh, well, I feel a sense of judging. Oh, uh, goodness. I'll mm-hmm. tell you, it's the reason that I've not invested in a pain clinic, which we need mm-hmm. pain clinics in Rhode Island, because these are very intimidating letters. And I, I have the PDMP. I can see if my patient's taking both a benzo and an opioid. Perhaps my patient needs both a benzo yeah. and an opioid. Stranger things have happened in life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And millions and millions have taken both of those medications together successfully. And mm-hmm. they've never overdosed. But yeah. the, but you know what? Let's yeah. face it. The reason these poor people are being punished is because the lion's share of overdoses in our country had street fentanyl, heroin, cocaine, benzo, pain pills, and, fe- you know, mm-hmm. the many, ADHD many components. Mm-hmm. Many. So, but the government just decided in their infinite wisdom, well, we're going to arrest doctors who writing scripts for opioids, we're going to cut off patients, and we're going to transition everybody over to buprenorphine, the savior, and that's going to solve the opioid epidemic with the help with the help of the PDMP. And and that benzodiazepine question uh, is an improvement in the 2022 guidelines, because the 2016 guidelines actually said to avoid that combination, right? And so that's like kind of a stronger, more negative word versus just be careful if a patient's on that combination. Right. Well, you know, I'm going to be careful because that's the nature of the practice. And you, we have processes and protocols for how often we're going to test and how we're going to monitor, et cetera, um, in those scenarios. But, you know, I think that's actually a pretty big change that's more forgiving of that more understanding, right? On the basis that, hey, there are patients that are going to be prescribed both of these medications simultaneously, and it's not necessarily wrong just because it happens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To know how to, like Claudia had mentioned before, you know, CDC had this huge implementation plan. Um, it was very well funded and very well planned in 2016. They mm-hmm. paid for an outside company to help them with an implementation guide. They wrote in the back end into different clinical decision support tools um, within the electronic health record. And that was another one of our comments this time. Like, where is that plan now? Like, I don't think they even have it, as you guys said before. And so I don't understand how to get it translated into patient care, because from where we're sitting, it seems to have gotten worse since November. And so like, if the Department of Justice and state medical boards are still using metrics based on 2016 guidelines to flag doctors, then how Mm -hmm. do we expect this to translate into patient care? Like, I don't see, and I don't blame doctors at all, because we say this a lot too, that it seems like a lot of doctors are making decisions based on risk versus benefit of their own license and their own lives instead mm-hmm. of first benefit to the patient. Again, I don't blame them for it because it, it, it can be scary. And I, I would love to have a study with this, these letters to see, because Jen Oliva, is a, it's a health policy lawyer we talk to, and she's on our board. And she always says, like, if you're a doctor, say you have a couple hundred patients, you get one of these letters saying you're top 2% of prescribers chances are you're going to cut back on your prescribing. So what happens to those patients? Like what is the actual patient outcome of these letters other than lowered prescribing, which can't be the, the end all metric that they use? Like what happens to those patients? Yeah. And I don't, I don't know that we have a system that's looking at that. I mean, I think it, it could be interesting on, you know, for the state agencies that are, that are putting out these, these letters, you know, they could certainly do some follow-up if they were to, you know, I imagine there would be even grant funding for them if they would write a proposal to follow the, 
the results of educational letters. I would love to see that. They just had a study out, I think it was California, Jason Doctor, I think was his name, Doctor, Jason Doctor. Mm-hmm. He did this study. I can't remember exactly the amount of time, but if a patient died from any overdose at all, and then sort of like they did in California before with the death certificate project, but they would just send these doctors a letter if they had prescribed them within a certain amount of time before and said, Your, this patient died. Mm-hmm. And the study was out within the last week or two saying what a success it is because these doctors lowered their prescribing by like a certain percent. And so these letters are successful, but again, successful based on what? Right, right. If if that's the metric, lowering opioid prescribing. But I almost feel like with the, you know, why doctors really haven't heard a lot about the updated guidelines. We mentioned how the guidelines were implemented. Probably billions of dollars were invested in implementing the guidelines. And all I can think of is I, I can see marching bands and <laughs> right cheerleaders. Yes. Like che- mm-hmm. really the 2016 CDC guidelines. And I see all of these anti-opioid organizations like props sitting next to the marching bands and children with balloons and happy people. And then the 2022 guidelines get rolled out. And I see like an <laughs> empty field with burnt grass and a black crow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, maybe. uh, Yeah, I think there are some there are some um, handouts and some succinct guides, you know, maybe the doctor patient forum should put together a a handout for for patients to make sure they they're up to date and can share with their prescribers. We're working on it, Sarah. That's in our plan. We're just in the middle of, you know, applying for for grants and because there's so much there's so much work that needs to be done. So sure. I'm going to switch gears. I want to talk with you about, you mentioned uh, in your letter to me, the medical, uh, the Maryland Medical Society, you folks are trying to mm-hmm. get some legislation to address prior authorization reform. Yes. Uh, I would imagine, I know how diff- difficult it is to get people these prior authorizations. Is this a challenge being a pain doctor? Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. We deal with prior authorizations very frequently. You know, I think a criticism in the past, you know, pre-2016 guidelines might be, oh, well, it's, you know, gosh, it's so easy for a doctor just to write an opioid for pain rather than looking at other ways to treat the patient's pain. And, And that was maybe a legitimate criticism in 2010 or before where that was very true. But there are prior authorizations in place, and and they're not all bad. It's okay to have some rules, in my opinion. Uh, But I think that the place that we're at with them has just really jumped the shark, so to speak. And, you know, patients who are stable on a therapy for a long period of time, you know, still need to renew authorizations annually. And uh, it's bad for patients. It, it puts them at risk to have their medications discontinued. The prior authorization isn't, isn't timely. So it's, and, it's a real challenge for, for us. Right. And you have to have the proper staff so you can be a doctor and not have to be on the phone with insurance companies fighting to yeah. get the, right. Well, uh, and, and look, I mean, I would sit on the doctor, uh, excuse me, I would sit on the phone with the insurance company if there were reimbursement for it. Uh, you know, your attorney doesn't work for free. Your I accountant doesn't work for free. And yes, uh, I hear that. Yeah. All and so that's the just time. the thing is the idea. This is part of the service. And, and yeah. I think this is really a problem with the structure of healthcare in America. Frankly, the pharmacy benefit is, is managed by those PBMs, the pharmacy benefit managers. And so that's like a separate thing from your healthcare. 
with the doctor, the doctor visit and things. And so it all feels like one big piece for the patient, but that getting the medication authorized, there's no vehicle for, you know, any remuneration to the doctor. And so we're in the prior authorization for, for reforms that we're looking for in Maryland. You know, we're not even talking about being paid for our time, which frankly would probably be appropriate. Uh, we're really just talking about trying to work with the third party payers. So uh, private insurances such that if a patient has a, rather than say, just getting one strength of a medication authorized and then needing to re-auth for any change. Uh, we're also authorizations be able to last for longer than a year and that there not be obstacles to renewing when uh, a patient needs an authorization just to continue a, a medication. Right. Obstacles meaning, well, patient has to exhaust A, B, C, A, actually for pain patients, A through Z now before you can get the authorization mm-hmm. for the opioid. I said, doctors, if you're going to force these these folks to be on the phone fighting with insurance companies, then they should be reimbursed for that time. And when I explained that to a lawmaker, mm-hmm. they looked at me like I was insane. And, and I use that same, uh, that same comparison. I said, does your, does your, your uh, lawn man, does he work for free? No, mm-hmm. nobody works for free. They should be compensated for the time they're on the phone because you forced this situation. How will Maryland, you know, they're spearheading this effort. What can people do to help advance your efforts or the medical, the Maryland Medical Society's efforts? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, If you live in Maryland, reaching out to your legislator, uh, you can find it online who your local representatives are and there are ways to send them an email or to call them once you find their information of what their name is and just calling their office, leaving leaving a message. Hey, I'm a constituent prior authorization reform. Does it have a bill? I can bring it up. Yep. Okay. Yeah, that would be helpful because I'm, I'm all about prior authorization reform. It's just because once again, the patient suffers. Uh, so Sarah, I'm going to end this interview with do opioids work for chronic pain? They do for some people. All right, great. Well, Sarah, I can't okay. thank you. And en- Oh, sorry. Question before you go. I just have one more question that I would love to ask. Do you, ha- are there a lot of patients who are abandoned or have been forced tapered or lost their doctor or moved? Do you get a lot of these patients coming to your office? And if you do, how do you handle it? Like, do you take them? Do you only take a certain percentage of them? We do. We do take patients who have, you know, transferred from a, another prescriber or, you know, have had a, a prescriber that's no longer prescribing. Uh, you know, that is, that is part, of, part of what we do. I mean, we certainly would look at their situation overall and, and you can't, it's hard to generalize, but, but yeah, we do, we do see those patients. Um, we do consider whether, it looks like their therapy is a, a reasonable thing to continue. If I take on a patient that's had a lot of aberrant behaviors or had a urine screens that, that were not appropriate, you know, we're going to have a conversation about that. And, and um, you know, hey, I, I don't know that it's real likely that, that we're going to have any different results in, in this practice. And, and what, should, what should we start with? Should we start with something other than the plan that wasn't working? Sure. Um, yeah. know, there's a whole, a whole conversation that would happen depending on the on the situation. So yeah, I would say we just take those on a case by case basis of kind of what they are. And, and we do, you know, I think I do have a, a heart to help patients and uh, try to understand their situations. And uh, there are some people that that do need a, a fresh start. So we, we, we do those, those take on those cases at times. 
And I would say for, if I could just maybe give you another little soundbite about opioids for chronic pain, there are some folks who would say, you know, there's no evidence that opioids are effective for chronic pain, right? But it's, it's really because you can't do the scientific trial that you would need to do like that gold standard randomized control trial where you randomize patients to certain different treatments. And uh, it's just, it's just not possible to, to, to run the study where you treat patients, you can't, you can't give somebody a placebo for years for their chronic pain. So you can never do this randomized placebo controlled trial. There are like ethical problems with that. Right. And they know Um, they still, they still claim it because it it used to be what you said there, there aren't studies showing long-term benefits. And then over time that morphed into, there are studies showing it doesn't work. Right. What they about miss- Krebs? Krebs study. Yeah, have. the space trial. They misapplied that study. Um, I don't, are you familiar with the space trial that they used? No. It's like, it's a study that Krebs did um, in the VA where um, they took people who were like osteoarthritis, low back pain, moderate pain, hip pain. They excluded any severe chronic pain, chronic pain patients actually at all. And then they treated it into two groups. And one of the groups was non-opioids and the other group was opioids but much to what you said like even that group that failed the non-opioids they ended up giving them tramadol to give them something yeah but then included that as a non-opioid a non-opioid group and that's their that's their focus they say there's no there aren't any studies and they never say what you just said and, and now blue mm-hmm. cross sends out the letter i saw yes. the letter from blue cross oh uh per uh it turns out opioids don't work for pain krebs but and they cite i said wait yeah. a minute Nobody's discussing. And I can't how many times that study. And I I reached out to Erin. Like, Erin, why not discuss how your study's being misapplied, misquoted? Mm. Because she's so anti-opioid. Like, her answer in media was the same answer as when doctors or anyone raised concerns about the CDC guideline. And she said the only reason people would ever complain about this study is because they're being paid by opioid lobby. Like, that's their Mm. goal. Instead of discussing what's actually what's actually happening. Yeah. And I'm not even sure, is, is there an opioid lobby anymore? I mean, if Purdue is, is gone, you know, is that even a thing? It, right? Yeah. Like, I can't imagine. Oh, no, no. In Divier lobbies. In Divier lobbies okay. heavily. Okay. Oh, yeah, but... no, no. And in Divier's not, they're not going away. They're here. Yeah. And Divier yeah. probably has more powerful lobbyists than Purdue yeah. will ever have. Mm. So Well, and so for opioids for chronic pain, you know, I would just also say that absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, right? We just, we don't know. There's no one conclusive trial. But what I know is that if I have a patient in front of me and they aren't misusing the medication, if they're endorsing benefit, if they're meeting all the criteria that we have, then um, this is a reasonable therapy in 2022. And that it's challenging because that's not how everybody feels, but that's how how we practice and we want to help people. And, and I would tell you that it, it is really a palliative therapy in a lot of ways, right? Like it's, I think the challenge is, you know, is, is it really curative? And it's not, but if it's a way to help someone live and function and have a better quality of life, then that is maybe something worthwhile in my opinion. And now we're hearing from people who can't even get into palliative care with cancer, with active cancer diagnoses. So oncologists are turning their backs. They don't want to, they don't want to get involved. Right. And they're sending people to interventional pain centers, but that's not the role of an, you know, interventional pain doctors. They don't, they're not just going to take on 
well, the ones in Rhode Island anyway, mm-hmm. they're, they've turned away people with cancer. Like, no, that's not our role. And, and we all That know seems wild, that, yeah. Sure, it's nobody's role, except for the oncologist. And I mean, even hospice doctors, it's, def- it's really difficult to find people going into hospice and palliative care because of this fear. And I always say, we have a lot of work to do. Yeah. Bev, I, I was going to wrap up the interview, unless you have any further questions. I'm good. All right. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for taking time out of your day uh, to be with the doctor-patient forum. You are truly courageous. And from where I'm sitting, women are fighting harder than the men. So in my opinion, girls rule, boys rule. <laughs> and that, that, that continues. And Sarah, any, uh, any words for the person who's suffering desperate? Any words for these people? I think finding a, finding a team, your family, your friends, some practitioners that can support you. I think that's really important so that you can not be alone with chronic pain, with the support of, of friends, family, and, and providers. Great. Thanks so much, Sarah. We loved having Dr. Sarah on our podcast, and I hope that she comes back on again. It's always incredibly encouraging to speak with a doctor or provider who has a balanced view on opioids, pain management, prescribing, CDC guidelines. We so often hear media push one narrative. It really encourages me so much to hear a doctor be more balanced. And I hope that this episode encouraged you also. We spoke a lot about the CDC guidelines, the updated guidelines, the old guidelines, but not everybody is in agreement as to whether the updated guidelines even are less restrictive, which seems odd, right? Because you would think that it's kind of black and white on whether it is or it isn't more or less restrictive. So I'm going to play some quotes so you can hear it actually being said by the people that it was said by about the updated guidelines and their views. Dr. Sarah said that the updated guidelines were an improvement because they weren't quite as strict. Christopher Jones said the same thing and he happened to be an author of the updated guidelines. I want to play a quick clip for you of an interview of Dr. Lewis Nelson. Now, Dr. Lewis Nelson is a doctor. I think he's in New Jersey, maybe New York, but I'm pretty sure it's New Jersey. He's been part of this anti-opioid group for probably a decade. He has signed prop petitions. He has taken place in other opioid guidelines in New York, and he was um, a member of the core expert group, just like Valentine, for the CDC guidelines. And you guessed it, he also has been an expert witness in opioid litigation. So when the updated guidelines were coming out, he was interviewed, and I want you to hear what he says. Well, remember, the, the, the issue with the 90 MME is not one that suggests everybody should be brought down to 90, right? It suggests that when you're going up in the dose from essentially zero, you shouldn't go above 90. And that's what the original guidelines said. And what they're suggesting now is, while you should be cautious above 50 or above 90, it's okay to go higher. And the problem is that as the dose goes up, the benefit doesn't, but the risk does. So you're adding a lot of risk without getting more benefit. The risk is is a risk of overdose and a risk of addiction. So it's not a benign effort to go ahead and go above 90, which is why we've really pushed back on that 
specific issue that's, that seems to have come along with the new guidelines. Well, Dr. Nelson, then the question is why propose this then? Well, there's a lot of advocacy from people out there with chronic pain and other and other issues. Uh, the pain management lobby, they, they've really tried to push this. Next, I'm going to read some quotes from an article that was published in uh, The Guardian, December 17th, 2022, by Chris McGreal. Now, Chris McGreal is an author who has written about OxyContin and Purdue because that's exactly what our country needed was more books about the same topic. He says the CDC has been accused of bowing to drug industry pressure after releasing new guidelines that doctors say put lives at risk by rowing back on warnings about the dangers of opioid prescribing. The latest CDC guidelines have caused controversy after dropping specific limits on dosages and lengths of prescribing from a key number of recommendations used by physicians. Dr. Kenneth Shepke, Florida's deputy health secretary, was so disturbed that he issued a public statement accusing the CDC of tossing aside the limits used in the previous guidelines released six years ago. Shepke told The Guardian he's concerned that the move could cost lives as the U.S. continues to grapple with the worst drug epidemic in its history driven by opioids. It's pretty clear to me they softened some really good, strong recommendations that they had in 2016, warning prescribers against overprescribing these opioids. And I don't really see a good reason for removing those two warnings, he said. The United States already has the highest per capita opioid prescriptions in the world, and our overdose numbers certainly reflect that. My concern is the apparent softening of the warnings to my colleagues across the nation of the dangers of prescribing either far too many days or too high of a dose. That doesn't really help the pain, but raises dramatically the risk of overdose and death. Now, I want you to hear this one. Dr. Andrew Kolodny, president of Physicians for Responsible Opioid Prescribing, PROP, sees the drug industry's hand behind the change. And then goes on to say Kaladni testified against opioid makers, blah, blah, blah. So this article is basically saying, yes, there's a softening of the guidelines. They become less strict, which agrees with Dr. Sarah and Christopher Jones. But he takes a different angle on it by claiming that industry funding is what caused this change in the guidelines. And Kaladni agreed. Now, this agrees with what Dr. Lewis Nelson said, right? Uh, but one thing I want to say to you is industry funding. What they mean by that is pharmaceutical companies, opioid makers, what they call opioid lobby, paid off government agencies to make these guidelines less strict. What's interesting about that is that this has been their claim from the beginning. Anytime any doctor, organization, anyone really came out in 2015 or 16 and said these CDC guidelines are going to hurt people, they would say you're only saying that because you're paid to say it. They went so far as in the comments on the docket for the 2016 guidelines, Dr. Kaladny and Dr. Caleb Alexander, both of whom, by the way, are serial expert witnesses in opioid litigation, they actually did a study analyzing the negative comments, what they consider negative comments on the docket to show how many of those organizations were paid, how many of those organizations were paid to say what they said uh, implying that the only reason anyone had any concern with the CDC guidelines was they were paid to do so. What's so interesting about this is if you look at the amount these people took, these organizations took, it was pretty minuscule compared to the amount of money Kolodny, Alexander, Ballantyne, Nelson, 
and many others who took part in the CDC guidelines how much they have taken as expert witnesses in opioid litigation. This is what we call the litigation narrative. I played for you a quote from Dr. Lewis Nelson, and I read two quotes, one from Dr. Andrew Kolodny and one from the uh, representative from the Department of Health in Florida, all three of them agreeing with each other that the CDC loosened their regulations and the reason this happened was opioid lobby. They were paid to do so. But I want to read to you a very interesting tweet from Andrew Kolodny. Now, this has to be sometime November or December because he's talking about the CDC guidelines. But listen to this. Press coverage of the CDC opioid guideline is wacky. CDC issued a guideline much stronger than the 2016 version. High dose defined as 50 MME a day instead of 90. But press headlines say CDC softened guideline. I am so incredibly confused because it wasn't just press that said it. It was him. He said it to the press. So did Dr. Lewis Nelson. I kind of wish they would make up their mind because now I'm confused. Are the updated guidelines less strict? Are they more strict? Is media getting it wrong? Did opioid lobby pay the CDC to make these changes? I don't know. I wish they'd make up their mind. But now I'm going to, to play for you a few clips of Dr. Jane Ballantyne. They were two recent uh, webinars she did within the last few months about the updated CDC guidelines. So the press actually got the wrong end of the stick that they thought that because, and they widely after the uh, publication, actually after the publication of the draft of the 2022 guideline, they said that the implication widely in the press was that the CDC had loosened its guidelines. In fact, it had not. All it had done is be careful not to name doses in the bullet points that it, it, it published. But when you look at the main doc document, it, it's actually the opposite. The doses lower and the cautions are even greater than they were previously. The, predictably, the, the impression that the press gets is that this is actually a softening of their previous stance. But in fact, it really isn't. The next quick quote from Dr. Jane Ballantyne was in a webinar she did a few days ago about the updated guidelines. They also suggested extra precautions when the dose reached 50 morphine milligram equivalents and avoiding altogether uh, doses over 90 morphine milligram equivalents. You heard Nelson and Ballantyne both say that the CDC guidelines said don't go over 90 MME. But that's not actually what the CDC guidelines said, and that's part of the problem with the misapplication, right? So let me read to you what the CDC guidelines actually said. Number five, when opioids are started, clinicians should prescribe the lowest effective dose. Clinicians should use caution when prescribing opioids at any dosage, should carefully reassess evidence of individual benefits and risk when considering increases dosage to equal to or greater than 50 MME, and should avoid increasing a dose over 90 MME a day or carefully justify a decision to titrate dosage to equal or greater than 90 MME a day. So now you have two people on the core expert group, two very prominent figures in media when it comes to the guidelines and opioids. They both misrepresented the guidelines. They both said, the guidelines said you shouldn't go over it. 
and to avoid it altogether. But that's not exactly what it said. So that's a problem to me. If they can't even represent it and they were on the core expert group, how do they expect anyone else to represent it properly? I'm going to end this podcast by leaving you with some quotes from a few different documents. The first document is called CDC Guidelines Improving the Quality from 1996. The composition of guideline panels can shape the recommendations themselves. From the size of the panel to the characteristics of the members, each decision may affect the group dynamics or potential bias in the group as a whole. The importance of an unbiased panel increases as the strength of the scientific evidence declines. Now, I just want to remind you that the CDC guidelines admittedly were based on very little to no evidence. Guidelines, unlike some types of policies, are not mandatory. In healthcare and public health, guidelines are not meant to enforce, but rather to recommend programs or practices based on the best evidence available. Often, however, CDC and others' guidelines become the standard of practice, unintentionally acquiring the force of policy. Here's another quote from the same document. Users of guidelines and recommendations need to feel confident that those participating in the development process were not unduly influenced by personal interests. These interests might be financial, intellectual, or professional. For example, competing financial interests might include research support, stock holdings, or employment at organizations affected by the guidelines. Intellectual and professional interests might include authorship of studies or provision of expert opinion publicly or in testimony related to the guidelines topic. Another quote from the same document. Each release of a new CDC guideline might have a lasting impact on clinical and public health practice. Guidelines may be converted to policy implying widespread implementation by a broad range of groups. Guidelines may be even converted into law entailing subsequent regulatory enforcement. This is from a document called Ensuring the Integrity of Clinical Practice Guidelines, a Tool to Protecting Patients, 2013. Widespread financial conflicts of interest among the authors and sponsors of clinical practice guidelines have turned many guidelines into marketing tools of industry. Biased guidelines can cause grave harms to patients while creating a dilemma for doctors who may face professional or legal consequences when they choose not to follow guidelines they distrust. Such guidelines fail to place patients' needs foremost and instead protect livelihoods and preserve ideology. Guidelines can have a powerful effect on the behavior of clinicians. Highly publicized guidelines from prestigious institutions might be issued and viewed as clinical rules, making some doctors reluctant to deviate from recommendations, especially in the face of professional censor or potential legal consequences for failure to adhere to a standard of care. One last quote, because contact Content experts are generally conflicted when reviewing topics in their own specialty. They should be consulted for content topical issues, but should not be the authors of the systemic reviews, informing recommendations, nor of the guidelines themselves. Thank you once again for listening to our podcast. If you're enjoying our podcast, please follow us on Spotify, leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and share with anyone that you think might benefit from this information. 
If you have any comments that you would like to leave us about this episode, as always, please reach out to us at Bev at the doctorpatientforum.com or Claudia at the doctorpatientforum.com. We look forward to bringing you the next episode of the Doctor Patient Forum podcast. Just a quick disclaimer, the information contained in this podcast should not be considered medical or legal advice.